performance models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's, uh, well, not particularly a good morning. I guess I'll just say it's sort of kind of an average morning. Uh, the wind has been blowing and it's been raining, and I've been told that WERU may pop off on the air occasionally, so I'll forewarn you about that. Just stick with us, and hopefully we'll be a short break, if, if at all. But anyway, Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your fluky anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. Um, I'm going to start out with another apology. I just got in this morning at 3.30, so I'm going to sound a little scratchy. I'm going to probably be a little more drifty than usual, too. But uh, coming at 3.30 is something I haven't done for a long time, but it's something that a a boat captain probably does fairly often. So uh, Mike made the catch of the month this week, uh, this month, so I'm going to let you uh, give the intros for this boat, boat captain. What's the weather like in the Virgin Islands, oh, Alan? Boy. We all want to know. You want to see my tan? Yeah. <laughs> Bug bites, too, you were saying. Let's get uh, the whole got, tropical, yes. tropical picture. I am allergic to the noceums down there. Yeah. I come back looking like measles every time. I found that the flora and the fauna down there kind of freaked me out. First thing I did was got in a shower with like uh, twenty um, geckos, and I didn't. I thought they were like plastic appliques, like decorations or something. <laughs> Until they moved around. I didn't know nothing about lizards at the time, you know. And and again, I haven't really bonded with the tropics yeah. myself. B- but. Bushwhacking is not not a way to go down there. That's for sure. Yeah. They're a little ahead of us spring wise though, right now uh, in the there, Virgin Islands. Uh, I don't think there is a spring. I think it's solid summer the whole time. Imagine. Yeah. All right. Nice if you like that sort of thing, I suppose, you know. Hey, we're doing Botox this morning. Wicked excited, too. Um, every once in a while, they uh, hand me uh, hand us books, and uh, this one here, Greenpeace Captain, My Adventures in Protecting the Future of Our Planet, Peter Wilcox with uh, Ronald B. Weiss. Um, got to read that. Really like the book. Excellent book. It is just about to uh, come out in a day or two, I, I believe. And... Uh, Luckily enough, uh, Captain Peter Wilcox lives nowadays out on Isleboro off of, uh, you know, uh, Lincolnville there with uh, his friend Maggie Wilcox. Just down and, the coast a bit and hang Yeah, they're, they've all showed up this morning to talk about uh, his adventures with Greenpeace, this book, and a bunch of other stuff, too. Welcome, uh, Captain Peter Wilcox, this morning. Thanks very much. Yeah. And, um, Peter, we like to ask... Um, I call it the boat talk question. It's kind of the um, the basic uh, 
question we ask around here is what happened to you when you were young and messed you up about boats? <laughs> and right about, um, if I could get you to read that, this little part right here, you uh, start off the book uh, pretty flat out with uh, one of the best answers to that boat talk question I've ever, I've ever come across um, from Chapter 2. Well, uh, so how did I get to the point where my ship and I had become a target for terrorism? Strange as it may seem, it probably goes all the way back to how I was brought up. Not that my parents ever thought, gee, we'd like our son to be blown up someday, but they themselves were committed activists who endured their own challenges and harsh treatment. I was actually, uh, we get to the part I'm a walking argument for uh, nature versus nurture. Is the part I was hoping to get you to read. Oh, excuse me. You were adopted. I was. Um, yeah. I don't really remember it. It is always just a fact of life. I had uh, two brothers and sisters who were brought in the same way. Um, I was hoping to get you to read the part about uh, argument for nature versus nurture. All right. I'm a walking, talking argument for nature, for, excuse me, for nurture in the nature versus nurture debate. I was adopted at the age of three months by a left-wing, anti-nuclear, anti-war, socially progressive, hardcore, offshore sailing family. It was preordained that I would become a left-wing, anti-nuclear, anti-war, socially progressive, hardcore, offshore sailor. While it wasn't really planned that way, I cannot argue the point. There are many apparently chance-by-chance happenings and lucky coincidences with enormous impacts on my life, but I am here... 400,000 sailing miles and four decades of environmental activism later, exactly where I want to be, doing exactly what I want to be doing with exactly the kind of people I want to be doing it with. Now, your parents, like, say, um, were kind of uh, progressive uh, folks, and your, um, what would we call it, resume of protest uh, activity even before you grew up and, and got to uh, Greenpeace was pretty impressive. You were in Selma, the March in Washington. Uh, folks took you around a little bit. Yep. I was not in Selma. I was in Montgomery. In 1965, my father and I traveled down to meet the Selma-Montgomery Civil Rights March. And it was a dramatic experience. Uh, my biggest recollection from the march, uh, we participated in the last day, the, the march into Montgomery itself was the feeling of optimism that was in the air. There was just a feeling of, we can do this. And in many cases, at the time, 1965, one of the counties that the march came through, Lowndes County, had no uh, African-Americans registered to vote, and it had about 120% of the white population registered to vote. <laughs> uh, and I can't remember the exact figures, but the numbers of blacks registered to vote in the next 10, 20 years in the South was dramatic and the change was a huge impact. I think we certainly have a long way to go with making sure that all Americans of different colors receive the same benefits of citizenship in this country, but that that march and participating in it certainly had a huge impact on my life. I uh, would say that's going to be one of our themes this morning. How do you change things, you know? the. Uh a uh, hundred years after the Civil War, the Eisenhower policy was gradualism, black people, gradualism. You know, if you behave long enough, everything will be cool. And again, um, how do you change things? We'll get to that. Um, but um, 
so we grow up, and uh, it is uh, you're a couple years older than I am. I um, was of the first year that was not. Uh, I was the first class that they didn't draft, but you were eligible for the draft, weren't you? Well, I was. I was number one, uh, but I was also in the draft where I went through pre-induction physical and did the whole thing. But then in March, Nixon called off the draft. I was down in Florida on the yacht racing circuit, and there was quite a party that night. But I had uh, I had known about the Clearwater, and I had set a conscientious objector's job to go there and I went through with it anyway even though I wasn't called up and it was really really a great fit um my family had been friends of the Seegers for many years I can remember as a kid when Pete and his family would bring their sailboat down to Norwalk and my father gave them sailing lessons and later uh uh working on the Clearwater was just it just felt perfect to me I mean it was a either go back to college or go to college and do what I really had no clue about what I wanted to do or sail around and and do something that felt good and and Clearwater was a great opportunity I just read in the Marlin Spike uh, boating magazine they're rebuilding the Clearwater right now for uh, like the sixth or eighth time and they claim that they're going to do it so it won't need to be uh, rebuilt so often it's a freshwater boat among other things Uh, it has a companion boat called Woody Guthrie too they're rebuilding right now been taken up by the Hudson Marine Museum, that's an aside, though. So um, you get on to uh, a Clearwater mate, I guess, and, and work your way up? Uh... Yeah, I was mate during the 73 season, and then I took a couple years off and came back in 76 as captain and stayed till 80. Uh, I guess getting the Clearwater captain's job at age 23 was my first real break, if you if that's what you want to say. Um, uh, I was the first captain to last for more than a year at a time. Uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It was uh, it was just just what I wanted to do. I mean, the the sailing, the fifty kids once or twice a day got a little old, which is why I left it after five years. Uh, and I wanted to expand my horizons a little bit past the Hudson River and Long Island Sound. Uh, so, but I did enjoy it. And I I was a board member there a few year, <coughs> a few years ago. I still think the organization is great. And I'm happy to support the work they do. The uh, Pete Seeger Sloop Clearwater is connected intimately with the reason you're now living on Isleboro with this uh, nice lady, Maggie Wilcox, here. Um, Maggie worked on on the uh, Clearwater, too, and I think that's a pretty good story. Maggie, can you tell us how you got to the Clearwater? Uh, I got a phone call out of the blue from this guy who said, how would you like to come down and be a relief cook on the Hudson? And at the moment, I was painting my parents, scraping and painting my parents' house to repay a car loan. So I said, threw down the paintbrush and said, sure. And um, once I got down there, they uh, they kept asking me to stay, and I kept staying. So You had already done some boat cooking. I did. How was that now? Um, it was a challenge. I um, grew up on the water in Rockport, and my folks weren't boat people. So when I graduated high school, I wanted to That's work on the That's got to be hard just to sit and watch it. That's yeah. what happened to me when I was a kid. Yeah. 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 So I lied my way onto the schooners, and, um, you know, there's a network. So Peter got my name from, from the network. And you ran into Peter down there on the Clearwater. I did. Kind of hit, <laughs> hit it off. Hit it off. Yep. 
And then uh, he goes off, and, yeah, and you go off. He went off to save the world. And, yeah. You know, I stayed for another year or two on the Clearwater and then um, went on to other things. And uh, many years later, you reconnected. How did you reconnect? Well, we'd, we'd kept in touch, and every few years we'd, you know, manage, usually when he came up to Maine for some reason or another. And uh, he was transporting a boat, and um, we met for dinner, and that was it. There you go. Yeah. And you also, I, I got I to gotta get this in here, too. You had a seagoing career uh, a little bit besides the Clearwater and the schooners, too. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing. I went from Clearwater to working for the Exxon Company on tugboats. Why but is that embarrassing? <laughs> I think that's kind you know, of cool. Moral, the moral juxtaposition there is was a little difficult. but um, Cooking a lady cook on tugboats? Yeah. Yeah, interesting gig. Yeah, yeah. Me and the Portuguese guys. Right. Comes with certain, uh, yeah, stuff that's nowhere around that, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Interesting, yeah. Well, good for you. And, and again, it's all related and, and uh, you know. It's a it's a big and small planet at the same time, isn't it, Captain? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now, um, how did you get to uh, from the Clearwater to Greenpeace? Now, please. Well, I saw an advertisement in the National Fisherman, which I guess has been supplanted by a similar magazine of another name. Oh, uh, I'm not up on that. We'll probably get an answer on that. Yeah. On the phone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've seen a fisherman's ma- newsletter, you know, newspaper around. Anyway, the National Fisherman I used to read. And I opened it up. I was working on a schooner in Mystic one day for a friend of mine and uh, just taking out day day sailors. It was not very interesting. And I saw this advertisement for Mates and Engineers Wanted on the Rainbow Warrior. And I had read about Greenpeace. I had read Bob Hunter's book, Warriors of the Rainbow. And I was entranced by their use of nonviolent direct action. And I guess I really want to emphasize here nonviolent because we learned a very significant lesson from the civil rights movement that nonviolent protest was probably the way to go. It certainly worked in the civil rights movement, and it's been a line I have been very happy never to have been tempted to cross. I just don't think we're going to make the world any better place by destroying somebody's property or injuring people. And that's something I still feel very strongly about. So I had read Bob Hunter's book about Greenpeace, and but I had no idea you could just join them. It never occurred to me to try to get in touch. And all of a sudden, the first Rainbow Warrior was in New Bedford, and they were advertising. And so I drove right down the next day, and about a week later, I uh, had quit my job in Mystic, thanks to uh, Frank Fulchiero, who was a very understanding boss, and moved on board with the possibility of being a deckhand. And this is where the f- story gets a little funny, but the First morning I was on board, the captain came to me and said, well, can you paint? Well, I had been a professional sailor for 10 years at that point, and I knew how to hold a paintbrush. So he said, well, good, I want you to redo the lettering on the stern. And I thought, I never told the guy I could do lettering, but he takes me back, and the lettering on the stern looked like it had been done by somebody suffering from a lot of distractions, maybe I should say. <laughs> And so I rigged up a scaffolding and got some paint, and I looked closer, and I noticed the letters were punched into the steel. And I did the job, and the, they were so impressed I was made first mate that day. So did you tape it off? What, you had the, No, I didn't tape I cut it in by hand. Oh, really? Yeah, because, but I just, I just traced out the punch marks, and yep. it turned out later that uh, the guy who slightly later would be the, the real first captain that I sailed under under Greenpeace, Pete Bouquet, had punched the letters in on the stern just, I guess, three or four years before when they when they got the boat. 
so that was that was my introduction. As an anti-piracy tactic, also, um, I, I I'm going to admit my stupidity of when Mike first told me you were going to be on. I had my hesitations because I confused uh, Rainbow Warrior with Sea Shepherd, and I think we need to really point out that the uh, the distinction between the two. Well, there have been traditionally some huge differences, and certainly one is. Sea Shepherd's willingness or threat to use violence in a in a significant way, and Greenpeace absolutely does not cross that line. We're not allowed to do property damage. Heaven forbid somebody gets injured other than ourselves, and we absolutely don't cross that line. I mean, we have been blown up, we have been <laughs> arrested plenty of times. We do not ram ships. We do not. Uh, I mean, if policeman comes up to you you don't even push him you certainly don't push him you don't raise your hands so that's given us i mean i can remember being in places arrested like peru and england where the police knew this and they weren't so scared of us and they were a little confused maybe and like in peru but they uh they didn't react violently towards us and uh i still believe fundamentally that that's the right direction to take. I don't appreciate the threat of ramming somebody else's boat at sea. I absolutely would not have to have it done to myself. Yeah. And I wouldn't do it. I absolutely wouldn't do it. Greenpeace has had it happen. You're a trimaran. Can you tell that story? Well, I think you're referring to Paul Watson's boat, the Sea Shepherd, the Addie Grace, I think was the name of it. Now, I'm not too okay. sure. Well, but this... that was Paul Watson's boat. And it's been a huge controversy of whether or not the boat needed to sink or whether they sunk it on purpose or I just, I don't want to go into it. But that's, um, the Addy Grace got rammed by a, if that's the correct name, by a Japanese whaling ship. Mm. They got in front of it and didn't move and uh, got rammed. Well, there's a, uh, what a reason, probably part of the confusion is that I went onto YouTube and saw a video that I believe is labeled Green Tea, Greenpeace Boat being rammed and it's a video must have been filmed from a uh, inflatable further away but you can clearly see the uh, japanese boat steering into the uh, the tri tri hold boat yeah I, I i think that's correct i think they were rammed i don't think there's any but question i think about it was, it. i think it's mislabeled it should have said sea shepherd it should have said sea shepherd yeah, yeah. it's also my understanding now i have no <laughs> wish to condemn sea shepherd i believe they have gotten away from threatening violence yeah. Um, I, I, they have done some really great work on fisheries issues, and I applaud them for that. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to. I, I think we're, we're back to what Mike is saying about how do you affect change? Does the uh, ends justify the means? Well, nonviolence a huge distinction. I really, I mean, absolutely. I, I huge. think we're all in agreement on this one here. Uh, the moral high ground is kind of important. When you're, uh, if you lose moral high ground, you really don't have much left. Is uh, what some people. Uh, can think uh, when when forced to think about it, um, and it's unfortunate. Again, I talked to my um, maritime friends, and, and they confuse the two, you know. And PR wise, that, that can't be a great uh-huh. thing. Um, Greenpeace, um, absolutely, uh, very impressed in the book here. How how you do uh, go out of your way to be nonviolent and non um, destructive in any way, but you do get in between people and stuff sometimes you know oh oh, oh, we actually do and we do sometimes get our own boats crushed 
I mean, if you can crush an inflatable in between a thousand foot ship and the dock, you get serious brownie points when you get back to Amsterdam. But that's our material, not anybody else's. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are times when we need to f- we need to put ourselves between what's going on and, and what's happening. And the most brilliant example of that was the taking of the inflatables in front of the harpoon guns by the Russian whalers off the coast of California. That simple picture didn't need a statement. It just said everything. We are willing to put ourselves in between the harpoon gun and the whale to keep you from killing the whales. And we are certainly willing to do that. Here's another thing I found kind of interesting about Greenpeace and, and, and of course, protesting's kind of current events and in the news. Uh, once you guys got that picture, you don't need to keep that inflatable in front of that. Uh, you've got the picture. So good. You've, you've accomplished the, uh, the goal. You've made the, you've made the statement. Um, you, don't, you don't linger in front of the, uh, the protest can, can uh, end and, and you can move on to the next. I, I'm not too sure if I would agree that we would end a protest simply because we have a picture. Um, uh, there are many things that go into that decision. Uh, the statement has been made uh, yeah, is what well, I'm saying. Ma- look, we do what we call nonviolent direct actions. They are extremely useful, in my opinion, as public education tools, making people aware that something is going on. If you can make a dramatic enough statement, it'll get picked up by the news, people will see it, and it will become a discussion. And that's what we're hoping to do. Let's discuss some of the things that are going on. And if we can bring debates to the public attention, that's a big part of our job. We are doing boat talk this morning. We've got uh, Captain Peter Wilcox in here this morning. He just wrote a new book called uh, Greenpeace Captain, My Adventures in um, Protecting the Future of Our Planet. And uh, his wife, Maggie Wilcox, is in here, too. They live over to Isleboro nowadays. And uh, a call-in show, too, so we can yep. throw that open also. one 625 9378 is the number. We're sitting here, uh, volunteers at this uh, community radio station, and uh, you run, um, you're our captain of uh, boats full of volunteers. No. No? No. Uh, That's another big difference between Sea Shepherd and Greenpeace. Uh, In Greenpeace, I suppose we're about half volunteer, really. Uh, I think I get paid about half of what a yacht, private yacht captain, would get paid on a boat of this size. But it's enough. I mean, I have two kids in college, and I'm going broke. Uh, but um, uh, most all the crew are paid. Uh, we work three months on. We get three months off. It's quite well regulated. Uh, uh, and the advantage of that, of course, is that, oh, I'd say about half the deckhands on the Rainbow Warrior my last trip had been in Greenpeace for 10 years or more. I mean, there's really no place else like Greenpeace. At Sea Shepherd, they are mostly volunteers. I think the captains get paid. Uh, Our outboard mechanic was a former Sea Shepherd captain who got tired of it and came to Greenpeace. Uh, That's that's the difference between the two organizations. And it means that you can live as a person. I mean, it's not great pay, but you also get paid for your time off. um, And it includes health insurance. So you can if you're careful, I, like I said, it's not enough to put two th- kids through college in this country. But uh, it's, it's enough to keep me doing it. Huge advantage uh, having professionals to run these ships uh, around the oceans of the planet. Um, volunteers as well? Uh, 
Yeah, we take on a couple volunteers every trip. We have a crew of about 14 and a couple volunteers. How uh, do they qualify to um, – you can't just let just, anybody walk up the gangplank? No, they don't walk up the gangplank, but they don't have to have any seagoing experience. Um, I suggest that people pass what we call um, – Basic Safety, which is a five-day course taught by private companies here that gets you your basic Siemens certification. And I recommend that for everybody coming on the boat. Maggie took it last year in Rockland. Uh, but not experienced sea people, not for the two volunteers. Now, the deckhands is another issue. Some deckhands are doctors. Some are welders, carpenters, double-purpose double people. Um we have fully professional engineering staffs, and the mates are all licensed. Everybody's, all the officers are what you would call officers. There's no difference on the ship. Yes. Are licensed. We have a phone call, so let's uh, go to that right now. We have Laura from Penobscot. Good morning, Laura. Yeah. Good morning. I, I just, uh, as I listened to the story, it's just like my heart was moved to call and just acknowledge, you know, the courage uh, to be integral uh, in everything that we do and. As I listen to your stories and whatnot, I just wanted to say thank you. Deeply grateful for the work that you do. And as a member of Greenpeace, I just encourage, you know, put your money where your beliefs are, you know. <laughs> so it's just uh, I'm really grateful. Thanks a lot. Thank you very, very much. Laura takes care of a piece of ground over in Penobscot is her contribution. Yeah, among other things. Um, Greenpeace has a, uh, a bit of a fleet, doesn't it? Not a big one, about half the size of Sea Shepherd. We have three ships. We used to have more. Uh, we have three boats, two ice class and then the Rainbow Warrior. The Rainbow Warrior is the only one with sails. Uh, we first put sails on the Rainbow Warrior in 1984 because I thought, well, first of all, I was a sailor. I am a sailor. Driving motor ships leaves about half my brain out of the whole equation. I agree. And... So in 1984, we put sails on the first Warrior, and we've kept them on all the Warriors. Uh, the current rig, I'm, I'm lukewarm on, I guess is about the best you could say. It's a schooner rig with A-frame mass that uh, doesn't work particularly well. I don't think you'll ever see Downwind. it anymore. Oh, no, we, we tack about 100 and, uh, 110, 120 degrees. Uh, the boat's got quite a modern underbody. Uh, she goes to windward pretty well. And that's uh, a huge difference from the two boats we had before, which were North Sea trawlers that we converted to sail. Uh, this boat was designed specifically as a sailboat, and so it sails much better. And again, you do get around the planet. This book, uh, Greenpeace Captain, is quite a resume of uh, actions and uh, just a short list here is um, um, underground uh, nukes off of Alaska, oil off of Georgia's bank, anti-whaling in Peru, uh, piracy as well, Bering Strait whales, Marshall Island, uh, oh, uh, just a uh, general tour of the South Pacific there, North Sea toxic waste. Uh, what else we got here? Denmark, uh, Captain Hook and the Destroyer. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's a dramatic one. Um, at the time, we had a very strong campaign against nuclear anything, and we still do. We're still passionately anti-nuclear, and whether it comes to propulsion on the seas or using it to boil water. Uh, in Denmark, uh, the U.S. Navy was scheduled to come in on July 4th, 1988, 
and it was on a ship called the Cunningham, which was licensed to carry nuclear weapons, which means, in our opinion, it had them. Now, the Navy, of course, until still to this day, does not uh, answer questions about what happens on its ships. They neither confirm or deny. But Denmark had a law uh, making the nuclear weapons illegal in Denmark. So when they came in, uh, we jumped in front of it. And the first time we jumped in front of it was it was doing 18 knots up the channel. And that's an interesting way to wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning. You spoke of uh, putting an inflatable in front of a oncoming ship before. When you say jump in front of it, can you be a little specific there, Captain? Yeah, you get about 200 yards out in front and you jump over the side. And the first like in your bathing suit into the harbor. Well, I, I was wearing a wetsuit. I got to say, my, my, my colleagues were wearing Gumby suits, which I, I thought was crazy because you can have a very hard time swimming in those things. I wanted to be able to swim. I had flippers on. So I was able to go up, and the second time the boat came by me, I was able to put my hand out and touch the bow as it came by. The, the one thing you have to be careful about when you're dealing with a warship like that is to keep all your body parts on one side of the bow or the other. You don't want to wrap them around the bow of a boat doing 18 knots, especially a destroyer that has such a real razor-sharp bow. But then once the bow's by you, you can look up and talk to the crew and, and pound on the hull and ask them to please turn around and, Real significant stuff like that. <laughs> and um, then again, uh, about an hour later, we chased them up into the harbor where they had to slow down. So I put a hook on the bow when they were doing about three three or four knots and dragged myself along. And what that did was it kept the tugboats from pushing them into the dock. So then they had to anchor in the middle of the harbor. And that's when things got different because all the sailors were in their shore-going blues. They were all looking forward to a cold beer. And all of a sudden, they had to get back into their, their other clothes to anchor the boat, deal with this stuff. And we kept them there for six hours. Oh, it doesn't help to upset those people. <laughs> we, we kept them there for They're six working. hours. They're working. That's right. Well, well sorry. There must have been a lot of press on shore by then also. Well, it's, it's a great story because about six hours later, the police finally managed to get us all rounded up and pulled us off the boat. And we had a... One of our smaller ships, the 120-foot Moby Dick, anchored in front of the dock. They pulled it away. And the Cunningham came into the dock. But by that time, about 50 or 60 Danish people were on the dock, all jumped in the water in support of our action. And that's really a beautiful thing. Yeah. You can inspire people that quickly. And the ship had to go out again, and the cops spent another two hours trying to pull people out of the water. So that was, that was a fun day. But we don't do that again tomorrow, do we? No, didn't have to. Right. Uh, no, spent the night in jail. And again, made our point, and we'll get to your tour of the world's prisons in a little while. <laughs> We're getting there. It's an echo thriller. It's got a love story and a prison. It's uh, got a bunch of prison uh, angles to it, the Greenpeace Captain book. But anyway, the quote from the uh, book is, I wrote it down, rule number one, when jumping in front of a speeding destroyer, keep all your body parts on one side of the bow. That is, quote, uh, Peter, Captain yep. Peter Wilcox, yes, experience. You know, uh, the, we've thought about doing that, we, and we have done those jumping in front of a ship actions on the high seas, but one of the things we had going for us was we did it in a narrow channel, which means he can't turn. And I think if the destroyer had turned hard and we were on the outside of the turn, there is a possible you get pushed under and pushed into the propellers. But when he's speeding up a narrow channel at 18 knots, he can't turn. So it was, it was really easy. Yeah, it's uh, now 
um, we uh, do these actions all around the planet, and we get to uh, meet a lot of different um, uh, security people and law enforcement officials, I guess it's fair to say. I like the little uh, vignette there where um, you've got people on board, uh, you're inside the bridge, the doors are locked, and, and they're getting a little frustrated. And as soon as it's time, you open the doors, you invite them in, make them a cup of tea, and give them some soup, right? Yeah, that's happened a couple times. I mean, uh, once they come in the bridge, you're out of the action. So you don't want to let them in. But then again, uh, for instance, in uh, Rotterdam two years ago, uh, we were getting in between the dock and a Soviet, a Russian uh, uh, tanker. And finally the cops came on board. They walked around trying to get into the doors, unlocking them. And when they finally grabbed a sledgehammer and threatened to break the window, I said, okay, okay, stop. Come on in. And that was pretty much our fun for the day. I guess uh, Turkish prisons are not to be recommended. No, I'm, I'm really glad I didn't see the inside of one. At one point during the trial there, my lawyer looked at us and said, you're going to get three months, and I can't do anything about it. And I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. And 15 minutes later, we were walking out. Why did they want I to have, put you in a turret? Well, well, you know. Oh, well, myself and some colleagues had uh, snuck into a cold-burning power plant, uh, which also happened to be burning irradiated fuel. I'm re- not sure why. Anyway, the word came down from from the campaigners that they, they wanted us to do a, an action inside this power plant. So I went down with a friend the night before and snuck around and figured out a way to get into it. Came down the next morning, and six of us hauling a banner that was about uh, 40 feet by 180 feet uh, snuck into the banner by going over a couple bar. So, sorry, snuck into the plant going over a couple barbed wire fences. And then we went up a conveyor belt, a covered conveyor belt, into the plant and hit almost up on the roof until lunchtime when we came down and unfurled the banner. And uh, they were they were completely shocked that we had gotten into the plant, and they were very unhappy. At first they thought we were PKK, and then they realized we had a couple women with us, and we didn't quite look right, and everybody had boiler suits on that said Greenpeace. PKK, for people who don't know, is the Kurdish... Uh Rebel, or what do you call it? Um, yeah, highly armed and liberation uh, front. Yeah. quite a bit more dangerous than you folks in yep. different ways. Yeah, yep. yeah. There, there's Kurds that are trying to get, take their country back, or however yeah. you look at it. And uh, so we, we straightened that out. But they were angry. I mean, remember the judge in, in the trial looked angry. He was not happy to see us and not happy to learn that we had snuck into a high-security power plant operation with double barbed wire fences and armed guards with Uzis walking all around, and they just couldn't believe we had managed to walk in like it was a Sunday afternoon. Speaking of making people angry, um, nonviolent, um, non-destructive, and non-armed, except you guys, you, go, you never take arms except in one, one circumstance. Yeah, we're, we're required by law to have a, a weapon in a, uh, in a helicopter that flies around the Arctic because if the helicopter goes down, the polar bears punch through the window and, and have lunch. And so polar bear polar bear protection. But yeah. you go places like the Amazon where lots of uh uh people get killed doing uh um a lot less protesting than you you folks do. It's a violent place with, with heavily armed people that object to uh 
people messing on their economic, uh, well, you know, whatever, and, and we, and we have, whatever they got going on. That's right, and we have had problems in the Amazon. Uh, at one point, we were uh, being boarded by a whole lot of uh, angry farm workers, and the police had to save us. The police had to come on board, push the farmers away, take us to the police station in the truck, uh, try to keep us protected for, until the tempers settled a little bit. Um, what's happening in the Amazon is is not cool, is not funny. Uh, the amount of deforestation uh, that happens there, and, and it's just insane when you cut down five square miles of rainforest. First of all, in a rainforest, you have to understand that the nutrients aren't held in the soil. They're held in the roots of the trees. So you cut down all the trees, and you're going to need to do massive amounts of fertilizers and toxic fertilizers to keep the soil going for a few years before it just dries up. Those toxins and, and pesticides wash downstream and poison the people living downriver. I mean, if you wanted to develop a way of ruining the environment and killing as many people as you can, that's what you would do. And uh, we've had a, a very good campaign in the Amazon for, oh, I guess almost 20 years now, maybe 16 years. And, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And, again, how do you make uh, – how do you change things? You don't want to uh, necessarily upset those farmers. They're working the same as those sailors. Um, they're, not the, they're not the problem. They're part, they're part of the uh, whole chain and scheme of things, but – well, the, the, the problem is the farmers that came to the boat were employees of the large corporations. Uh, for instance, Cargill, one of the largest U.S. corporations, privately held corporations, owned huge hundreds of square miles of Amazon. And they pay people to work them. The people don't own the land. They're paid peanuts to work there. And the people are doing what's put in front of them. And their people do what they're told to do. Yeah. But the, our models have shown so significantly that – Amazon people can do better living in a sustainable lifestyle, growing food, uh, not strip lumbering the rainforest, and get more for themselves out of it. Plus the fact that, you know, what is it, one-third of the oxygen in the world comes from the Amazon. It's kind of stupid to cut, cut that down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we do have another phone call, so... Uh Frank from Lemoyne called one 625 9378. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Alan and Mike. I wanted to, this is Frank Donnelly over at Marvel. I want to extend an invitation to your two people there on this radio today. We do a walk. Well, actually, we did one. We, we even had lunch there in Lincolnville Beach. We do walks every October. Last year, we did a walk from Ellsworth to Kittery about the Pentagon's pollution of the ocean. And we had a Greenpeace fellow, Russell, who did the. Uh, dolphin on, on top of the van. This year we're doing one about the the war on Mother Earth. We'd like you to join us. Uh, well, anybody can join us. We do it every mid-October. I know the date this year. Is, we're still performing it. And it's supported by Veterans for Peace and Code Pink and other, other peace activist groups here in the state of Maine and nationwide. And uh, so... This is right up your alley, Mr. Greenpeace captain there, Mike. And, uh, thank, thank you very much. Um, and my friend Russell, who was a, a Greenpeace activist for years, went around on ships. He's the one that made the dolphin and the, did the banner on the side of the van last year. It's all over the computer. All you do is Google it up. 
Well, I give a shout-out to Russell Ray, who I sailed with for quite a while and who who is a, a great artist and a, a nice guy. I haven't seen yes. him for years. Well, every Sunday we're on the bridge and Elspeth come join us. Okay, from thank 12, you. From 12 to 1, standing out there protesting the, <laughs> the bad thing of the day. Anyway, so I'm going to get off the radio and so try to look it up on the computer. One of you can join us uh, next, uh, next to mid-October. We're going to do a walk. We haven't even got the route down, but it's here in the state of Maine. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Frank. We are, once again, doing Boat Talk this morning, talking Captain Peter Wilcox. He's got a brand-new book coming out called Greenpeace Captain, My Adventures in Saving the, uh, Protecting the Future of Our Planet. I uh, recommend it very much. A very good book. Um, my copy didn't have pictures. I bet the uh, real book will be even better. And... Uh, <laughs> So we're talking about how you make change. Now, um, you grew up around the civil rights fight, and again, those people had, um, you know, been kind of victims of, of the original sin of this country, and the Civil War had come along. That was the big uh, change. But 100 years later, uh, we're stuck with Jim Crow, and how do you make change? And, and uh, nonviolent action. Well, th that's, that's what I took from my experience with the civil rights movement. I think uh, experience has shown that the nonviolent demonstrators getting beaten up by police time after time, usually having water cannons and horses run into them, uh, those images brought their concerns a lot of sympathy with the rest of America. Uh, the rest of America did not, did not like watching this happen. And that's what eventually turned the tide. Uh, and had they been violent, I don't think they would have gotten that kind of sympathetic reaction. Mm -hmm. So I think that from what I took out of that was that nonviolence is um, is the way to go. I'm not saying there aren't any conditions that I would you know would be tempted to use violence, but I haven't yet. Uh, and uh, I'm very glad of that fact. On the other hand, action is. Um important to the whole scheme of thing it um besides being on the ship and just being part of the crew uh doing something is important to to uh keeping people activated and you speak of the book of in the book of um sometimes wanting to uh finding yourself wanting to be a little bit more aggressive and and uh, again how do you uh how do you balance the the need for action the uh confrontation um Versus the nonviolent mission, and, and again, then you got to make some change, too. It's a tough gig, man. Well, you know, we, we do have the basic fundamentals. We don't do property damage. We don't injure anyone. We don't commit any acts of violence. Uh, and after that, what we try to do is, is develop a scenario that explains the situation. Now, too much of the time, it means holding a banner up, which to my mind is not an action. I call it a banner action. But so much of the time, I mean, that's what we did in Turkey <laughs> to great effect. Um, you're trying to you're trying to find a way of motivating people, and and really the best thing we ever did was the uh, the inflatable in front of the harpoon gun. Yeah. That was that's that uh, people saw that and got outraged. Right. Yeah. Phones ringing. Yep. We do. We have two phone calls backed up. We're going to go to Brett first. Good morning, Brett. Brent, are you there? Nope, I guess Brent is gone. Oh, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hey, how's it going? This is a great um, 
show you guys are doing today. Thanks for putting it on. I just wanted to, um, in the venue of books about boats doing um, nonviolent action, I had grown up um, with some, a friend who had, in the 50s, sailed a little catch with three other men um, out into the bomb testing site out in the South Pacific before to uh, do a nonviolent action. And it's a really interesting story about a boat called the Golden Rule that's being rebuilt now out in San Francisco to carry on that work. And, well, and, and, in fact, in fact, Golden Rule has been rebuilt. I'm scheduled. Oh, I'm scheduled to sail on it if I can make it in August. And uh, I wonderful. also remember seeing the original book when I was growing up. I had a picture of the boat on my wall. Those guys didn't make it past Hawaii, but much like right, the, were, the the first yep. Greenpeace campaigners who left Vancouver and didn't make it past Kodiak Island. The, right. the I, um, go ahead. I, I grew up uh, with. Knowing one of the, those sailors, George Willoughby, he, um, when I met him, he was in his late 80s, and they had this sort of great recollection of, use, of using boats and people and the whole idea of, um, you know, putting yourself out there in a way that, you know, you were the only thing being risked for a greater cause. And it was a pretty inspiring story to grow up with. But the book's great for anyone who can find it. I don't think it's in print anymore. But um, I hope you do get to sail on it. That would be awesome. Thanks for... I'm expecting to. I've, I've been in touch with them. I think it's a great group of pe people. It's um, Veterans for Peace, I think, is the name of the group that sponsors the boat now. Right. I think there's all, I think um, the goal is to put it back to work doing the same stuff. Yeah, that, that's right. And I, I, for one, you know, we're still, our legacy in the Marshall Islands is not over. And that's something yeah. uh, I don't know if we'll get into here. But it... Um, it would be a logical place for Golden Rule to go back. Cool. Well, good luck on the sailing, and thanks for putting the show and having this conversation, guys. Thanks very much. Okay, we'll go to uh, Yo next on the phone. Good morning, Yo. Good morning. This is Captain Yo in Tremont. I'd like to uh, commend the captain for putting himself in harm's way for so many uh, serious causes. I'm wondering, I, I didn't hear one thing mentioned, and I'm wondering if it has been considered to bring attention to plastic pollution in the oceans. I know it's not as dramatic as confronting a warship or protecting a whale, but uh, I consider it a very uh, imminent and omnipresent threat to, to us all, frankly. Um, thank you, Captain, for coming on board. Thank you, fellas, for putting this show on the air. And thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thank you, you. Plastics, my son, that's the future. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem. There's no question about it. The caller is absolutely correct. Uh, Greenpeace is not hasn't developed any campaigns towards it. Our, our biggest campaign at the moment is climate change, global warming. Mm -hmm. And we feel if we don't beat that, and by beating that I mean switch over from using fossil fuels to renewable energy, that nothing else we're going to do is going to matter because the oceans are going to die. They're going to become too acidic to support life, and that's going to be the end of it. But he's correct. It's a problem. Have you sailed through any of the gyres? I have, and uh, I haven't seen the dramatic things. I mean, the, where you see the most plastic is, is near shore, is near big cities like Manila. Um, but I have no doubt that it's a serious problem, and I'm glad that people are working on it. Speaking of saving the planet from global warming, and of course there's a lot of people don't even think there is such a thing. I guess that's going to age quite well in the rearview mirror, you know. Um, 
You uh, upset the Russians. Oh, just a little. Just a little. <laughs> and I guess um, compared to a Turkish prison, a Russian prison might not be that bad, but the bad thing about prison I took from uh, reading Greenpeace's captain was the uncertainty factor of being in a Russian prison uh, threatened with, you know. That's right. Um, the, the prisons themselves were were not fun. Um, but Russia has a justice system, I'm going to say somewhat like the, the one in the U.S., except that the U.S. incarcerates over double the percentage of population than Russia does, uh, where 99.9% .9 of all people who are put in detention are found guilty at trial. And everybody we were dealing with was telling us that we were going to go, go down for piracy and we'd be in jail for 10 to 15 years. Um, it was a month before I was able to get Maggie on the phone or meet with my lawyer or find out what was going on. And I never really felt that that was going to happen. I mean, I knew that we had pissed somebody off. We're protesting Gasparn, uh, Gasparn, uh, Gasprom, Gasparn, uh, uh, Arctic Gas, uh, the Russian. Yeah, Russian the, the, Arctic the gas. particular rig was the Paraslamia, which is a rig that's in international waters, not in territorial seas of Russia, but in the Russian EEZ, exclusive economic zones. So they have every right to drill there, much like we do in the Gulf of Mexico. But in our opinion, first of all, drilling for oil now is stupid. Drilling for oil in a place where you have no way of cleaning it up is stupid, even more stupid. And the huge problem was, of course, that up to that time, Vladimir Putin was putting all his eggs in the basket of offshore petroleum and minerals in the Arctic Sea to keep supporting Russia's Russian exports. That's his gravy train. Exactly right. Yeah, and without it, he's really in bad shape. And um, and we felt this was a huge mistake, not only for the Russian people, but for everybody. So we went up there in, in 2013 and did an action very much the same that we had done the year before when they really didn't say anything about it. But I guess now the campaign had started and got started to develop some traction and some publicity. And somebody along the lines thought uh, that we needed to be stopped. Uh, we did the action. Two of our climbers got arrested. Later that day, they tried to board the ship, but we held them off. Um, and we had every right to be – well, we didn't have – it's not <laughs> it's not legally allowed <laughs> to board a Russian platform in international waters. It's allowed for us to be there. Um, Freedom of the seas, but – right. So, yeah. anyway, the next day, 36 hours later, uh, the Russians came with a big helicopter and some combat troops and uh, abseiled down to the deck of the Arctic Sunrise and arrested us oh, all. Oh, that's exciting, yeah. It was exciting. I was down on the exercise machine in the gym for a few minutes trying to work off some some stuff. And uh, uh, one of the crew members came running up to me and said, they're jumping out of helicopters. And I went, oh. That's going to be interesting. So I ran up to the bridge, but by that time, the first one was down. Once the first one is down, there's really not very much we could do to stop them. I, yeah, would you like a cup of tea, boys? Well, Basically, yeah, <laughs> come on in. They took the cup of tea after they got everybody rounded up. They drank all the the 
all the liquor on the boat that they could find, <laughs> um, which to me I thought was just marvelous. I thought it was just like the old days when on the old wooden sailing ships, so the first thing sailors were doing, things were really going to hell and discipline was breaking down was they'd rob the grog barrel. And that's exactly what these guys did. But they, um, they towed us to Murmansk. It was a four-day tow. And, uh, yeah, we were arrested, put in prison straight away. Uh, and it was uh, two months later that at another detention hearing, say the first time you're detained for two months, then you get detained for three months. And I was quite nervous because the three-month window would put us inside Sochi, and I was convinced that the government didn't want us in prison in Russia during Sochi because they had spent a huge amount of money trying to make that a success. And in fact, um, that had I think that had been their plan all along. Uh, we were released from detention to city uh, having to stay in St. Petersburg, which is a beautiful city, by the way. Um, and it was when they passed their amnesty bill, which they do every 10 years in celebration of the new Russian constitution, that uh, they figured out a way to release us and did so. Yeah. We are once again talking to Captain Peter Wilcox this morning, a brand new uh, great book called Greenpeace Captain. I got to ask you one more well, question. We uh, have one more person on the phone, so all right. let's uh, yeah. get to them in the move. And good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. It's Catherine. Peter, oh, good morning, thank Catherine. You, thank you so much for uh, what a commitment in your life for all of us. But I would like to know what is your information on Fukushima, the ongoing meltdowns poisoning our ocean, and, and in my opinion, and I'm not alone, I'm certainly not a scientist, um, causing extreme mortality rates of of the sea life, including whales, uh, sea lions, uh, anemones, you name it, all along the coast and spewing the isotopes, isotopes into our atmosphere, also causing climate change to get worse. If, I just want you to know. I just want to know what you're feeling. Or what well, I just, spent, I just spent two months. a campaign against that. That, to me, is the most important thing facing our planet now. Okay, thank, thank, you. thank you, Catherine. I just spent two months at Fukushima doing research on the amount of radiation that's leaking into the water. It would seem that most of the radiation that's leaking in is coming from the airborne particles that were released in the original meltdown five years ago that have been scattered onto the land and are being carried down by rivers. Uh, our research, we, we went with the idea to do a lot of research from the Rainbow Warrior and we weren't allowed to do it by the Japanese government. But the, the Japanese government is making some very significant mistakes in the whole thing. For one thing, it turns out that next year they're going to uh, not renew the aid to the people that were forced off their property by the nuclear radiation. What's happening in Fukushima province now is that thousands of people are employed to scrape the top three or four inches of soil uh, from the roadside to about 60 feet back, 20 meters back. Um, and that does get some of the immediate radiation out of that area. But then what happens is it, it washes right down off the hillsides and covers it again. So now they have, I can't remember how many millions of bags of this stuff, which they're very slowly incinerating. I'm, I'm trying to draw you a picture that is, is more or less of a futile gesture. And the Japanese government, though, now is absolutely determined to turn on all the remaining 51 or 52 nukes all around the, the country to get nuclear power back online. 
Um, but there's some and and it forced people to move back to Fukushima. Now this draws a lot of parallels to the U.S. nuclear testing program in the Marshall Islands in the 50s when we used, in particular, the people of Rongelap as guinea pigs to test the effects of radioactive fallout, intentionally nuking them and then moving them back to their island three years later to see what would happen. Um, we know that long-term, low-dose exposure to radiation can be just as harmful as short-term high doses of radiation. Uh, we know that the people that suffer most from radiation are probably women in terms of reproductive health. Uh, the, the people in Rongelap suffered, the women suffered multiple miscarriages, six, seven, eight. They had what were called jellyfish babies, which were unformed embryos that only lived for a few minutes after birth. Um, we have never fully compensated the people of the Marshall Islands for what we did there, and we're still fighting them today on every step of the way. So in terms of Fukushima, the, there were two reactor cores that melted down and one pond full of radioactive waste that went critical. And we don't know where those critical masses are at this point. We know that about three or 400 tons of water wash through them a day and get carried into the ocean. Uh, we know that they're still critical and going hot, um, and that could continue for years and years and years and years. Uh, I don't think Fukushima province will be safe to live at for at least another 100 years for most of the people that got moved out. And um, there's really no way of shutting it off. And this is one of the reasons why we've been demonstrating against nuclear power. Fukushima was just two reactors, but over across the Sea of Japan and South Korea, there are eight and coming on nine nuclear reactors all within... 25 kilometers of a huge population center, nine reactors. And if those things have the kind of problems that Fukushima did, it, it'll, it would be... Well, just, a, lot of, a lot of job security for Greenpeace. Uh, yeah, just one other thing I'll add to Fukushima. I know we're almost ending, but yeah, it was very that. interesting to hear Prime Minister Khan describe how close he came to having to evacuate the 50 million people of Tokyo. Oh, cool. That was amazing. We have spoken to uh, Captain Peter Wilcox this morning. Brand new books called Greenpeace Captain. Highly recommended. Just about to come out. Go find it. And uh, I am sorry we didn't get to talk about a bunch of other stuff like Good Captain, Bad Captain, uh, writing books, uh, and a bunch of other adventures that you've had. Uh, we barely uh, fit this into an hour. And I want to thank you for coming this morning. Very much enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me. are the moochers and freeloaders in our democracy. Find out Friday, April 15th, 10 to 11 a.m. on the Democracy Forum. Garrett Martin, Executive Director of the Maine Center for Economic Policy, and Vanessa Williamson, 